here. Time for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. We, we have got such a packed show. I am exhausted already thinking about the scope and the depth of topic that we're going to try and cover today. My dad used to say, bite off more than you can chew, then chew like crazy. And that's what we're going to do because we have 3.5 or thereabouts billion years of life to cover in 60 minutes and we have two world-class experts on the show here on fuzzy logic to help us through this little journey and already i can tell you from the discussion outside the studio just now it's going to be a wild wild ride so welcome back to fuzzy logic dr charlie lineweaver uh g'day charlie you just got off the airplane from tokyo that's right it's a nine hour flight <laughs> but we've still got you full bottle and i've managed to lure onto the show my friend dr jochen brocks uh and both charlie and jochen are from the research school of earth sciences sciences at the anu and we're going to discuss life now uh we we, we had this big debate before we came on air about the definition of the word life uh, let's rip with this one charlie because you've got some pretty uh, strong opinions on the definition of life and why and why not it's a good idea yeah um most in many sciences when you have a concept it, you let the theory decide what the definition should be, and the definitions can change depending on what your information is. So I, uh, when we were talking, we talked about the an eye, for example. And we can talk about an eye, and you say, oh, I know what a vertebrate eye is. But then you say, okay, what's the origin of an eye? But you could do this about the origin of a car or anything, or a computer, or the origin of a microphone. You go back into the past and find out what it used to be, what it used to be before that, a proto-proto microphone, a proto-proto eye, a proto-proto, etc. And then you go back far enough, and the whole concept just disappears because it, it emerged out of something that you would not today recognize as an eye, or a microphone, or a car, or life. And so the idea that life disappears as we go back into the past is something that you should not only feel you should feel very comfortable with that because that's what's supposed to happen in Darwinism. Is this analogous to the definition of race? Now, my understanding is that most serious scientists uh, don't like the definition of the, of, of race. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that because race is a base uh, is based on prejudice and misinformation about the diversity of humans today. Uh, there are some scientific versions of race, but they're not being used because they're based on the mitochondrial DNA and the. But it's another example of where the definition breaks down because it just gets so blurry that it becomes at some point meaningless well that the race always was meaningless i think that was never based on anything science so i wouldn't use that as a scientific term and now now Jochen, do you do you agree with charlie on on the uh, definition of life here is 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 the term that you find useful um i think charlie charlie is absolutely right and uh, i think people who want to define life do it for two reasons a, if they if they go to a different planet or go to Mars and they find something, they want to know in advance, hmm, have I found life or not? And the same if you go back into very old rocks on Earth and you find some chemical traces or or some extremely strange looking crystals and well, how do we know that something actually is life or not? And there's this desire of definition, yes we found it. And but I think Charlie's right. Um these definitions make are correct for this day, for two thousand and fourteen. We're very easy to recognize life. Everything has DNA or RNA, we can say, well, this is life, everything else is not. Going back a long way in time, when there was no RNA and DNA, it would be stupid to say, well, this is not life, because it uses a different type of information molecule. So, so, so if I were to point to various objects around this room, and I say, like, a Charlie here, Charlie looks to me like, by common objective. definition... <laughs> Well, actually, he just got an airplane, so well, we're not so sure. But, right, uh, but you're, you're, I, I, you're I, I, using the what I call the South Carolina definition of like I know it when I see it, right? But uh, you know, you say, hey, the, I can say, to point to the room. There is an Australian. There's an, Aust an Australian, not an Australian, an Australian, not an Australian. And you go back a hundred years, try that. Go back two hundred years and try the same thing, and it won't make any sense. So that's so the concept of an Australian also disappears as you go back in time. I like Charles' Everything. definition of the, the French passport. You <laughs> should explain that one. I really like that. Okay, the, the, uh, when I, I talk to colleagues who are looking for early life, and so they define life simply by saying if it has DNA, it's life. If you do that, then you are 
defining something based on the life forms that we know today and then you as soon as you have something that's strange and out of your definition you say it's non-life so imagine that you're very interested in the history of france and you say well how do i define france and you and you look around and say well all the french people have french passports so you define france as or french people as people with french passports and then you do your archaeology and say okay i want to find the origin of french people and then you go back a hundred years you'd say oh there are passports and then you go back 200 years oh then there are no more passports so there are no more french people and so your definition has fooled you into a not seeing the progression that's the interesting part and giving you a definition that kind of just leads you astray essentially okay now i I know from having interviewed you in the past charlie that uh, you've talked about uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble now because how can I use the word life? But you've used this phrase, it's quite technical, and it's far from equilibrium, dissipative systems. Mm. So there's this force or this thing in the universe that takes energy and, can, and, and increases entropy. Is that something at the origin or at the core of what we're well, discussing well, now? The, the reason I use that is because we've seen those types of structures all over the universe. And what we're trying to do is understand the relationship of the life on Earth to life elsewhere. And my point was that if you define life as this large physical structure called the Far From Equilibrium Dissipative System, then we've already seen it elsewhere. And we've already discovered extraterrestrial life. Most people are really dissatisfied with that. As to, you know, oh, you're feeling uncomfortable about using life, just say it's a provisional definition based on what you know about the things around you today. And don't try to push it too hard into the past because you should expect it to disappear. And that's a good thing. That means that you're talking about evolution rather than some ideological prescription that is not going to... I mean, in science, we're used to having our definitions, you know, extrapolating them into non-existence, and then we, then we understand something about, oh, where does it go? What was there and rather than this traditional DNA-based life? All right, so let, let, let's now... So we're, we're, we're going to have a problem with this definition of this word, and, and I get your point. Uh, saying the word life has all sorts of problems, but something happened. But right, it's not just life; it's everything you can think of. Talk about noses. You think you know what a nose is, right? That's obvious. But if you follow the evolution of noses, I will show you things that you would say, "Ooh, that's not really a nose. That's a proto-proto nose." And I'll show you something earlier, and you'll you, "Ooh, that's even less like a nose." That happens to everything, and that's what you should expect. And that means you're doing evolution. So the whole, are we, are we talking about the problem of definition with anything here? I mean, does, can anything be defined according to your sort of criteria? Well, in math, people are very happy with definitions because math is uh, somehow not a, it isn't a science. But in, in science, when you have a concept that you're using in your theory, well, it's fine if it works, but if it stops working, if you go back further, then you have to change your concepts yeah. or let your concepts change. I think the, definition, the definitions are fine as long as you're aware for which boundaries they apply. So if I go back to, say, three billion years in the past of the Earth, and we define life as something that's based on RNA, DNA, and it's quite similar to what we have today, we're probably safe. But we have to now, if we go even further back in time, this definition disappears, it makes no sense anymore. So we have to be aware of the, for every definition. Same thing with stars, you know, you think you know what a star is, or a galaxy. I have all kinds of colleagues who study galaxies, but when they start to study the origin of galaxies, you know the universe is 13.8 billion years old, our galaxy is about 12 billion years old. When you go back in the universe about 12 billion years, this galaxies just disappear. There aren't there anymore. But then you say, well, what were they? Well, they're kind of proto-galaxies. And before that, they're proto-proto-galaxies. And the interesting part of the astronomy is to figure out what does those what do those words mean? And how did galaxies develop out of proto-galaxies? And how did proto-galaxies develop out of proto-proto, etc.? Uh, I've, I've got to say, I actually see this in my day job sometimes because we look at uh, geographic mapping systems. As someone draws a line on the, on the map and they say, if you're on this side of the map, you're, then you're in this zone, and if you're two kilometres that way, you're, on the, you're in the other zone. But what about if you're one metre or, or one centimetre or half a centimetre? At what point are you really in this zone or are you in that zone? Uh, it's, things are more blurry than that, are they? Yeah, I don't think the word really is. Think of the nation state. You know, here we are in Australia. You've heard of, Ger- you know, Jakins from Germany. Ike was born in the States. And you say, oh, nation states, that's, that's a concept. But go back 100 years, well, the nation states were kind of different. Go back 500 years, then look at those maps. And, Holy cow, there's an empire over here, and there's not even a country here. And, and go back 1,000 years, there's city-states. 
And so the nation state has disappeared much the same way we expect life to disappear if we go back three, 3.5, 4 billion years. Yeah. I remember as a teenager, I actually had exactly, exactly this question. We visited Aachen, this beautiful old dome that started in 1815, was added with Gothic and, and Roman-style pieces. Everything can still be recognized as a mosaic of different ages. And uh, in this church, Charlemagne, Karl the Great, was actually a throne. His throne is actually still in that church, still can see it. And I asked my father, oh, um, you know, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, Char Karl der Große, was he actually French or was he German? And he said, well, <laughs> it's not quite clear whether France was here or Germany was here. I said, well, okay, you can probably find out by asking the question, what uh, language did he actually speak? The problem is he neither spoke German nor French. You would not understand any of what he was saying. It's neither French nor German. So that question is probably just ill-placed. He was neither. Now, now, Rod, that's not too hard a concept to understand, is it? <laughs> well, well, it is uh, not quite midday here on I, Fuzzy Logic. And, um, I so by much wanted a definition so we could talk about something I knew. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm so depressed now. Uh, but uh, we, we will struggle. But look, as I said before the show, as long as we have an interesting, illuminating conversation, then my objective is reached. Mm. And of course, on this wild journey with us is uh, Dr. Charlie Lineriver and Dr. Jochen Brox <laughs> from the uh, ANU Research School of Earth Sciences here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, I want to go back to a question that I had. Something happened 3.5 billion years ago or thereabouts on our planet. Oh dear, Charlie's no. shaking his head. No, what, uh, well, uh, you, what, you're, what you're trying to do uh, now is introduce again a phase transition from non-life to life. That's what you're just trying to do, and that's why I'm shaking my head. Okay, so do I, I do I have any firm ground for a conversation? I, 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 I can I can object here and say, well, that definitely was something that happened 3.5 billion years on Earth, and it was indeed some traditional state, but it's still very interesting to talk about this, and. You mentioned 3.5, and 3.5 is such an interesting date because from this time on Earth we have fantastically well-preserved sedimentary rocks from South uh, Africa and uh, the Pilbara Desert in, in northwestern Australia. And these are simply the oldest rocks on, on Earth, sediments that are extremely well-preserved, but we actually can look for the earliest signs of life. That's why it's an interesting date. Yeah, that doesn't mean that something happened 3.5 billion years ago. It means that we have been able to see something back to 3.5 and then earlier it's harder to see so you're talking about a what happened is a selection effect some rocks disappeared that were earlier so it's a candle in a very dark space where we can look what's actually happening but it's really damn interesting what's happening right. for example there could have been lots of life at 3.9 they were in a rock up until a billion years ago they were present on earth and then boom they got wiped out and they got covered over with basalts we don't know about them anymore and so your event at 3.5 is created by a selection effect of what you can see now, but it had nothing to do with something sudden that happened at 3.5. Well, okay, so do we have such a thing as a self-replicating chemistry of some sort? Is is that a, a, a foundation that we can work with? Even though I can't use the term life well, now. So, well, <laughs> well, I'm going to object to the word self, but maybe you should ask <laughs> Jakob because he won't object as badly. <laughs> Okay, Jochen, please. Well, well so um, <laughs> let's talk about something less controversial. That's about something that we actually can measure, and uh, we don't need the definition of life. Um, we can look when something, or we can agree upon that's life, actually already existed on Earth. And um, the very, very, very oldest rocks that are sediments on Earth are about 3.85 billion years ago from the Ishwa Crustal Belt in Greenland. And uh, these rocks have been heated a lot. They were to 400, 500 degrees. They were almost molten. So you can hardly recognize the old marine sediments. But in there, there's um, little crystals that contain some carbon. And uh, looking at the isotopic composition of the carbon, we can say, well, life could have, could have produced this type of carbon. But there's also a biological processes, entirely chemical processes could produce them as well. So it's ambiguous. Scientists fighting fiercely about signs of life at 3.85. Then there's a big gap in the geological record. And then we have rocks from 3.5 billion that are beautifully preserved. And there we have um, things called stromatolites, things that look like microbial mats that are quite similar to those that still existing today. There's carbon isotopes, sulfur isotopes, methane gas of a certain composition. And each of these different pieces of evidence could be explained by completely abiological processes that still exist today. But all of them together look pretty good that something that is quite similar to modern life already existed at 3.5.
So uh, the, when we start pushing the time back, way, way, way back, uh, the evidence gets so thin that we're talking about, uh, we get into the area of speculation, circumstantial evidence and so on. It's a really difficult time and, and hard scientists like yourself not comfortable uh, when you're going into that zone. W would that be correct? So exactly what Charlie says, um, the signs of life, as you would expect, become more and more unrecognizable the further we go back in time because our definitions, our search images change and things become also more simple. So these microbial mats, the stromatolites are talked about. Modern stromatolites, microbial mats that live in areas where snails and other animals don't exist and can't eat them up, um, they're pretty complicated in their structure. If you go back a billion years, they become more simple. If you go back two billion years, we still can recognize definitely that's a stromatolite, a microbial mat, but they become more and more simple. At 3.5, they become so simple that we don't really know whether a completely abiological sedimentary process, wave action in the ocean could produce them as well. So at 3.5 they've become ambiguous. And, uh, but there's a continuous record of these things from 3.5 to modern days. So it would make sense to assume at 3.5 they're produced in roughly similar ways, but as Charlie says, it's a continuous process. We actually expect them to become more simple. Well, uh, can we one, one, one thing that is often not appreciated by even professional scientists is that what I call the at least problem. And that is when you're finding fossils, let's say you go find a fossil of, uh, I don't know, what's your favorite uh, fish or something? Oh, let's say a salmon. Okay, so let's say, okay, what's the first salmon? So there's, there are 20 people all over the world looking for salmon fossils, and they find one at, let's say, 400 million years ago. And then one bad scientist would say, Ah, salmon started at 400 million years. A good scientist will say, how sparse is the record of salmon fossils that we've examined? If we have one at 300 million, or 250, 260, 270, 300, 350, and then 400, well, then there was a gap of 50 million years where there was no fossils. So you should say, well, this estimate I have of 400 that probably at 450 there were also some, but we just didn't see it because that's how big the gaps are in your sparse data. So if this 3.85 billion year old date that Jakin just quoted, many people say, oh, that's how long life has been on this planet. But this record is so sparse that you have to add something. So it's at least 3.85 if you believe this carbon. But well, Charlie, there was no summon. There is no such thing as someone. <laughs> there is no such thing as someone? Yeah, someone. Well, the, no, the someone are interpreting the data. Oh, dear, there is, there is no spoon either. <laughs> there, there definitely is no... I, I, I call that the least problem, and it's important to know how sparse your data is. <laughs> I, I think we might break for a little track, give you all a breather here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, an exhausting ride on the, uh, the topic of science with our, our guests, uh, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and Jochen Brox, and a bit of Moby to lighten up your day. Moby, yeah, yeah, we're good. I know you like maybe uh, Charlie, I so do. here we go. And uh, a bit of maybe here on Fuzzy Logic, and we're talking uh, life, I think. <laughs> Except we don't have a definition of the term life, which is really awkward. Uh, but uh, it's anyway, not uh, awkward at all. Get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be ha uh, having therapy after this session here with uh, our guests, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and Dr. Jochen Brox from the ANU Research School of Earth Sciences. And uh, now, Jochen, you, you, you picked out this book, which was actually given to you by the author, and the book is Darwin's Lost World: A Hidden History of Animal Life by Martin Brazier. And you've chosen this quote from Darwin. Uh, I'll read it first, and then I'll get you to tell me why you chose this particular quote. And Darwin says, The case at present must remain inexplicable and may be truly urged as a valid argument against my views here entertained. What's, what's Darwin saying at this point? Yeah, so when... When he wrote this, you can really imagine uh, Charles Darwin sitting in his quite stuffy office with uh, stuffed animals and lots of fossils and candlelight, writing on his book and uh, swinging his pen and standing up and being quite nervous. And he picks up a fossil from the shelf, as Martin Brazier explains in his book, and on it is Agnostos. It's a very strangely named um, little trilobite that actually had no eyes and 
is very, very old. It was amongst the oldest fossils known back then, which from the period called the early Silurian, which we now know as the early Cambrian. And um, he must have looked at it, turned around on his fingers, very discontent, and, and maybe said, uh, inexplicable, entirely inexplicable. And what he meant was that in the oldest rocks known back then in England and the world, um, these trilobites, these fossils, appear suddenly in one sedimentary layer, and there's lots and lots of them. But if you go into older layers, older back in time, these fossils disappear, and there's no trace of life. And uh, very famous people, the most famous geologists of the time, Murchison, said, well, that was an act of creation. Life suddenly appeared at this point in time, and we should not expect to find anything older. And uh, Charles Darwin objected to that. Um, he said, if my theory is true, um, life must have been, no, the world must have been teeming with life all the way back hundreds of millions of years. And the Earth is also older than we think. So I is it like finding a, a, tra a footprint tracks and you can see the tracks going forward, but then suddenly as you trace them backwards, they, there's no steps before that. They, they just disappear. And so you would infer that there was something before that that moment. Well, the, one of the main problems was it didn't seem to be as gradual as you might expect that things become more rare and rare and smaller and smaller. It really looked like the fossil record disappearing in one big bang. And all this was actually later called, according to this, the Cambrian explosion. It appeared that in the geological record suddenly all modern types of life, all modern phyla, all great bow plan blueprints of life suddenly appeared in one big bang. And Darwin said, this is the biggest objection to my theory. And, and, and he was being right up front with that, very honest, which we, we, which we appreciate, of course. Do, what, now, what's the modern explanation for this? So, for the sudden appearance of the fossils, for the Cambrian explosion, uh, this was extensively researched in the 20th century, and uh, the second half of the 20th century, from the uh, uh, 1950s on, scientists made enormous progress in this. So, they went back into these rocks older than the early Cambrian and looked very systematically for traces of life. And in very unlikely places, where Ch no, Charles Darwin already said, well, we know only really the fossils of, of Europe, mostly of England, but we don't know anything about somewhere in the tropics, in South America, in Russia. The Earth is so enormous, we must have overlooked these things. And he was exactly right. They found very quickly fossils a little bit older than the trilobite agnostos in uh, somewhere in Siberia. Then the Chinese found layers still a few million years older. And then in Newfoundland, this famous mistaken point, they found fossils going back another 40 million years. And but then they suddenly disappear. And um, then since the 1980s we have um, we have to use chemical techniques to trace life even further back in time and that's exactly what charlie says um, the game changes fossils change life changes we cannot use our search patterns of looking for fossils we can see with our mere eyes if you go so far back in time ah uh, now Jochen, uh, you you've done some fascinating work and i want to get into that a little bit later but first i wanted to kind of diverge for a moment onto the character we were talking about here and uh, that is of course charles darwin uh, I think he would be a great guest on Fuzzy Logic, but he might be a bit quiet right now. What sort of character do you do you, do you think? What's your sense of him? Uh, how do you perceive him now through history? Well, he has been his image and reputation, and his work has been remarkably well. Uh, appreciated and continues to be appreciated. He was humble enough to understand when he didn't understand something and when he thought he had something he, he said exactly what the evidence was and when you have evidence-based science it sticks around. So I think his, uh, more than I guess the average scientist, I mean this, I mean Darwinism is something that, uh, I mean besides it, it could be called Wallaceism too because he, he should share that with Wallace but he gets most of the credit and he's also I think he has said, hey, this guy did it too. So he, he had a, an ego that was under control, which is also rare, I think. Mm -hmm. So reading the first edition of The Origin of Species from 1859 is, is, was for me an amazing experience because it's absolutely incredible how correct this book still is. There's so little error and there's these amazing predictions of what we will find in the future that virtually all turned out to be absolutely correct. So he was amazingly well ahead of his time. He made predictions about what we found in geology, about uh, early life, about the age of the earth, where 
he made predictions much better than any of the other geologists, just based on the idea how old life could be on Earth. And um, he actually, with the further editions that he published, um, he added things that are not quite as correct anymore because he tried to, to accommodate other people's views in, in, in the second, the third, and the fourth edition, and so on. But, he, but he, he's a character that seems to me of such breadth uh, and, and depth of understanding. And yes, Wallace, of course, was someone who... He's an interesting character in his own right, isn't he? Because he didn't have the same background as Darwin. Uh, of course, we're talking about Wallace. I can't remember his, his first name. doesn't matter. Alfred Russell. Alfred. Uh, Alfred. Yeah, Alf, uh, Alfred. and he, the so-called Wallace line, and he's getting malaria in the tropics and so on. But he didn't have the same gentleman background that Darwin had. And yet he still came up with a pretty... A pretty an idea that's pretty close to what Darwin did, mm -hmm. uh, w without the, the the benefit of the uh, money of money. <laughs> of money, yeah. yeah. Darwin had much more money. His family was wealthier. So I'm I'm a little bit in, in awe of, of Wallace was a battler. <laughs> yes, uh, and, and we, Darwin was not. He was he was <laughs> well, a landed he, he was born, he was born into money. Let, let's hit another quote uh, of of Darwin because uh, you, you've chosen uh, a few for us here, Jochen. This one's a little bit longer, and here he says, Here we encounter the formidable objection, for it seems doubtful whether Earth, in a fit state for habitation of living creatures, has lasted long enough. Sir W. Thompson, that's Lord Kelvin, concludes that the consolidation of the crust can hardly have occurred in less than 20 or more than 400 million years ago, and probably not less than 98 or more than 200 million years. The very wide limits of how doubtful the data are and other elements may hereafter to be introduced to the problem and so on. Well, what's, he sa what's he saying here, uh, Joachim? Yeah. So, um, Lord Kelvin was, he was a very, very good scientist and he made a very good estimate based on what and how old the Earth could have been. So he thought, hmm, in the very beginning the entire Earth was molten and then it started cooling down. And how long would it have taken to cool down to a state that the Earth looks like today, with a crust we can walk on and doesn't burn our feet? And he came up with the conclusion this would you know, require less than 200 million years, therefore the Earth cannot be older than that. Unfortunately, he didn't know about radioactivity. The Earth's core produces an enormous amount of heat now, and it's cooling down much, much, much slower than he thought. And Charles Darwin said, I actually don't believe this. We will find that there's a mistake in this, and it is much, 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 much older. And Darwin was completely correct. It is 4,460 million years old. And, and it's very easy to look back from our position to, to the past with the, what the information these people had to work on uh, with almost like um, a, a pity, you know, and you know, how could they have not seen it? But we, we tend to assume what we know today. And Charlie, I'm thinking of you here now because uh, scientists in 100 or 200 years' time might look back on our time and say, well, how did they not know that? It was obvious, surely. Uh, is this this whole thing of uncertainty is is such a core part of our, of our thinking in science? Is it not? Uh, yes, yes, it's important. I think most good scientists that I know are comfortable with uncertainty and pay a lot of attention to it because everything we think we know, some we we have very good evidence for, others we have not so good evidence, others really crappy evidence. But keeping track of how compelling the evidence is is what we do for a living. Um, now, I don't want to go into religion too far here because it's not really the, the origin or the <laughs> origin, <laughs> the uh, the point of our show. But uh, this this element of uncertainty strikes me as one reason why people are attracted to dogmatism, to fundamentalist fundamentalist faiths, is because life is nice and easy when you don't have to think about it and you don't have this uncertainty. Do you, do you find it unsettling yourself? In, in your day job to go, you know, what I've just written in and published in that paper today, tomorrow it might be completely wrong and now I've got to backtrack. Uh, unsettling? Uh, no, you, you try to avoid writing things like that. <laughs> you, try to, uh, you try to write things that are based on facts that will remain facts and uh, then your, what you write will remain 
true and accepted. But if you kind of like interpret facts in a way that's based on a prejudice that will be later shown to be wrong, then uh, then you're in trouble. But you, I, I know you, Charlie, that uh, you're very conscious about this prejudice, about this bias that we all bring, the human-centric view of the world, and you know the place of intelligence, for example. Uh, it, it skews our thinking in so many subtle ways, does it? It sure does. It. I mean, uh, yes, uh, I run into it almost. Matter of fact, I'm reviewing a paper now in which they assume that um, life on other planets first it goes it's it's born and then it goes through an oxidation event after 2.3 billion years kind of like ours did or 2.3 billion years ago and then it go then animals develop and then intelligence develops and so they have this scene it's called the great uh, i think stephen jay gould made fun of this idea as kind of like projecting this whole line that happened on the earth and pretending that it's a deterministic passage rather than a historical process where history is one damn thing after another and it could be anything while in physics you don't know what this and this and this and this and so there's a interesting divide between the historical sciences like history and uh, biology and physics chemistry these more deterministic ones and where they come together is exactly uh, where the life originated and so that's why it's such a difficult problem it's a it's a very important distinction and when i talk to biologists i often make that point uh geology is like forensics we try to find out what happened in the past based on some extremely old pieces that have lost most of the evidence and we try to piece back together what happened who had done it and um the very nature of the science makes it impossible to find a good answer all we try to do is find the best answer so we have pieces of evidence and we try to find the best explanations that explain all the pieces of evidence that we have from a certain point in time, like three billion years ago. Um, we can say, well, I found the best explanation for all the things that we can observe, but there's no way to compute or make an estimate just how really good that information and that in interpretation is. Those physicists can go and measure 50 times and come up with a confidence interval and say, this is correct with a probability of 95.5%. Those scientists can't do that. And we can also talk about what happened in the first uh, nanosecond after the Big Bang and then the first millisecond after the Big Bang and the first three minutes after the Big Bang with a lot of confidence because there is essentially no feedback there. Often when you, you try to predict human behavior, for example, oh, I'll do this and make it do this, but then he realizes that you're doing this and then he does this back to you. And so you get an incredibly complicated, contingent feedback and it's just hard to predict. But when you're dealing with electrons and protons and heat and temperature and expanding universe, these things are much more... Like deterministic. Uh, Physics is easy in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a repeatable uh, environment in which you could do something. I think we might have a little track break here, and uh, this is the journey. But uh, when we come back, I think we might talk a bit more on this theme about how you invest in your ideas in science. And since we are talking uh, about, <clears throat> sorry to use the word, guys, life. You can use it. Just use it with a question mark. Okay, life with a life a question mark. <laughs> uh, the Martian meteorite that arrived on Earth and the scientists back in uh, 1990, whenever it was, and they thought, oh, this must mean uh, the life has been found on Mars. And uh, what, what was how was that interpreted and what did that mean? Anyway, our guests today, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and Dr. Joachim Brox on Fuzzy Logic. To rest in my earthly grave And when they lay me down Navigate that big sky away But in the meantime uh, the journey, yes, what a journey it is today here on Fuzzy Logic because we are talking life, whatever that means, uh, 3.5 billion years on our planet and uh, at elsewhere. At least, at least. At least, <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, and on other places with our guest, uh, Dr. Charlie Lionweaver, who, by the way, uh, Charlie, I award you the uh, key to Fuzzy because you have been a regular on our show mm. and it's always a blast having you. And welcome for the first time, Dr. Jochen Brox. Uh, and I hope you will come back again for more excitement. 
and we were talking before the show about uh, so uh, where life occurs and where it might occur elsewhere apart from Earth and there was an event back in 1990 something where a little fragment of rock was found in the Antarctic sitting on the snow right there's a meteorite called ALH 84001 ALH stands for Allen Hills and it was found up I'm not sure maybe maybe 1980 or so It's called 84001 because it was the first one 84. found in 1984. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you. All right, and there was a big announcement. What, 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 what happened? Well, the announcement was based on, I think, the guy named McKay and colleagues, about five, six, seven other colleagues, uh, not Chris McKay from NASA Ames, but another uh, McKay. And uh, from my point of view, what they did was they looked at this meteorite better with more detail than they had looked at for any other rock on the planet essentially they used all the best tools and they found structures that seemed weird and they said look at this look at this the only explanation we have for this or the most uh, I guess the simplest explanation is that, that life created these structures but the problem was that they hadn't looked at other rocks in as much detail to see all the, the variety of structures you can get even if there is no life so that was one big mistake uh, but even today oh, I have a, there's a colleague uh, Joe Kirschvink at Caltech who thinks that uh, the magnetite crystals that are in this meteorite could not have been produced by an abiogenic in other words it had to have been life To, he thinks that produce these most scientists disagree with him because the evidence kind of weak but he thinks it's pretty strong and he's sticking with it until somebody can figure out how to make those types of magnetite crystals without life uh, so in the original paper they actually cited about I think nine pieces of evidence that looked like life had created them so this Martian meteorite is like four point something billion years old It's actually not a sedimentary rock where you would expect to find traces of life and fossils, but a, but a, a metamorphic rock, a rock that used to be molten at 2,000 degrees. But there's cracks in there. And they thought life had crept into the cracks, done some chemistry, left some structures and died, and then it was overgrown by crystals, so you know it has a certain age. And so they found nine pieces of evidence, and they say every one of these pieces of evidence could be non-life could be something biological but taken together the probability that all of these things are found together certainly strong evidence that there was life and one of these pieces of evidence the strongest was they found certain molecules in it that only life can create they're so complicated no biological process can produce them so I took this for strong evidence for life And uh, I actually visited Joe Kirschling in his office at Caltech in Pasadena in California, and he had this beautiful framed picture on the wall of a thin section of a rock. You could see different crystals and minerals, and between two minerals there was this protrusion that looked a little bit like a finger, a twist, or a tornado that looked really alive. And I, I asked Joe, wow, Joe, what, what is this thing? This, is, this looks bizarre. And he said, well, that's the hyphen of a fungus. It's a living fungus that bores its fingers into the rock to mine for minerals, to mine for nutrients. That's what fungus does today. And um, I said, well, and so what is the rock? And he said, well, that's LLH84001. That's a piece of rock from the Martian meteorite. And I said, wow, is anyone surprised that you find molecules of living organisms in this rock? Because this fungus is growing on it. So the reality is this rock has been sitting for 12 years in a drawer. In the beginning, they didn't know it was Martian, uh, lichen, fungus have grown on it, um, bacteria certainly crept into the cracks and died inside. So you have to be pretty conf uh, careful if you analyze a rock so like so that. So this, this has appeared since the uh, specimen arrived on the planet. So that's a post-event uh, that, that, that we're seeing in that photo there. That's right. So of these p nine pieces of evidence, there's certainly a mixture of, of things that we know happened much, much earlier. Uh, things that are actually occluded within crystals that are four billion years old and... and that must have happened on Mars, plus other things that are used to be seen as very strong evidence for life in the Martian meteorite that, are, that happened since 1984, And without a doubt. It goes to show just how careful you have to be in interpreting evidence. It's like DNA evidence that appears in court. You know, this DNA came from the suspect and therefore it proves it was him. Well, actually, what did you do with the sample once you collected it? Was it treated properly and have you allowed it to be contaminated? But the, the, bi the biotic process, as you describe it now, this is something where energy is being harvested in some way. I, is that 
uh, is that a definition that you find or an attribute that you find useful, Charlie? Oh, not really. <laughs> I mean, does the ocean harvest energy when it heats up? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> All right, now let's let's talk. Since we're since we're on Mars, then uh, there's currently rovers and things churning their way across the planet, and a little thing up there is still after what ten or so years. The opportunity, I think it is, mm. or the spirit, I can't remember. Spirit and opportunity. Uh, yep. One of them is still working. I think the other yeah, one is one, not. one uh, one died, and of course there's the big rover now, yeah. the um, Mars Science Laboratory, the Curiosity yeah, rover. What sort of information are you are you watching these things closely to see what comes back, and if so, what what sort of things are you hoping to learn from that? Well, I, I just returned from Japan, where I was at a meeting from ISOL, the International Society for the Study of the Origin of Life, and there were two talks about the latest results from uh, the Mars Science Laboratory of Curiosity, and um, they mentioned some of the history of it, and there have a little of a problem with their wheels now apparently some of the rock formations on mars are so hard that they when you go over them and they're going over kilometers and kilometers of them they start to tear at the wheels and the wheels would fall apart if they don't avoid so now the people who are driving the mars rovers say oh there's some of those rocks again i gotta go around them it's kind of like walking on some hot rocks on with bare feet you have to go around them and uh, that's what they're doing because you're not going to just send a mechanic up there to change the tires. yeah that's absolutely right that's right so they're they have found all kinds of good stuff about they're at a, the edge of a delta so there's a there used to be flowing water on mars and they can see where this water came down and and trained and formed a delta and they were able to sample that and uh, some minerals that were formed in the delta and now they're on their way through up to mount sharp to see the layered stuff because it's like a little like the grand canyon but i think the sequence layer of sequence on that mount sharp i think is maybe two or three times uh, higher than the Grand Canyon. So, I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon, but it's very impressive to see all those layers of rocks, and you say, hey, time exists, kind of thing. And But Mount Sharp is three times as big as that, and I'm not, I think they will at least get up to the first third to look through these lower layers. Now, interestingly, you know, it's in a crater, right? And so, right in a crater, you don't expect to have a big mountain in the crater. Apparently, the, I, I had been confused about the origin of this mountain, but apparently the crater was there it filled up with st sediment above the rim creating this higher level and then it eroded back down all inside of the crater re uh, making the uh, crater walls uh, prominent again but leaving this mountain of, with the hard crust on it that kept it from eroding still in the center so the mountain post-dated the formation of the crater so it's an interesting geology going on up there lots and lots of it and very well layered and that's what we're trying to figure out the you know what happened 100 million years ago on mars 150 million years ago 200 million years ago what was the climate like how did the climate change in mars we'd love to know that and the presence of water has been pretty much confirmed that it's a certainty that there is as far as we can say uh the water in the history of mars and, and probably even some there in the subsoils and so on lots of liquid water on the surface of mars probably 2.83 billion and earlier so what, what sort of experimental uh, data are you looking for? Or are you waiting to get back from this? So fossils. <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, it's actually not fossils, but molecular fossils. I think that's our best chance. So Curiosity has an enormous, interesting laboratory on board of uh, so-called gas chromatographs and mass spectrometers that can actually not detect fossils, but molecular fossils. Mm -hmm. Molecules left by organisms that synthesized them, died, the fossils, their, their shapes have dissolved, are gone, but they left their molecules spilled in sediments. And if you don't have any oxygen or any other um, oxidants around that can destroy organic matter, these molecules might still be preserved in, in Martian sedimentary rocks. So this is actually my field of research on Earth, and on Earth you can find these molecules going back to 1,640 million years into the past, and you can still find biological molecules. And uh, Curiosity has a little driller it can drill into the rock it can pull out rocks from some depth uh, grind it to powder um, push solvents through it like alcohol dichloromethane that suck out the molecules from the rock powder and then inject this the concentrate including the molecules into this gas chromatograph that's sorting them into different sizes and shapes and then a mass spectrometer that looks at what sort of masses and structures they have and uh, this is in my opinion the best way to find past traces of life because 
These molecules might be very, if you find any, very complicated and contain lots of information of what or who created them. Um, the only thing is they haven't found anything yet. Um, but on Earth it's extremely difficult to find such molecules, so on Mars you would have to probably look at lots of samples and drill lots of deep holes. But you know, that's the way. You know what's really cool about what Jochen just described there is when you use those techniques to sample the Earth, you don't see the Cambrian explosion. You don't see a sudden appearance of life. You see it's almost not there. Is that right, Jan? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In other words, if you're looking for teeth, boom, they appear. If you're looking for shells, they appear. But if you're looking for molecules that are produced by life and you sample before the Cambrian and after the Cambrian and during the Cambrian across that, then there is no gigantic change, discontinuity, as you see if you're looking for hard parts. And that means that there was all... There was a so, so it's a much more uniform history at this... At the continuity. There's some subtle changes, but the molecule, molecular fossils show a much closer continuity than the now, visible fossil record. Jochen, uh, you, you, Charlie mentioned uh, the, the Grand Canyon a moment ago, and you're talking about the exploration that's going on on Mars right now. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, because you just got back from the Grand Canyon, and you've been to all sorts of interesting places, Eastern Europe, right? I think I've lost track of where you've been. Just, just to get a really simple explanation of <laughs> in, so, uh, in, in 30 seconds or less. Yeah, in 30 <laughs> seconds. So I can't explain what molecular fossils are, but uh, I'm very interested in the period on Earth. It's about 800 to 700 million years ago. That's when complex life appeared to start evading the space on Earth. So our earliest ancestors, single-celled organisms, had a very complex cell structure: nucleus, mitochondria, chloroplasts, and so on. So 800 million years ago it seems it suddenly start bursting out and trying to start occupying the oceans and other space on Earth. And of course, you hardly can see any fossils of this, like visible fossils in the microscope. So I use molecules from around the world to see what actually happened during this point of time. And so there's, um, I collected samples from the Grand Canyon uh, in Sweden, uh, Central Australia, fantastic rocks with beautiful molecules in Central Australia, uh, in the area of Amadeus Basin in so Bitter Springs. Crudely speaking is what you're doing, like say you're digging up a room and you're saying I'm finding these chemical traces and signs of alcohol byproducts, uh, tobacco and tars and things. This might have been a pub. So the chemical traces of some activity that was going on there. Some, you know, the, the, the drinkers and the pub is actually gone or, or the beer is gone, but you can see the traces of what's left That's behind. Right. So if, if I or Charlie here fall, fall into a swamp and, and we die and we sink to the bottom, um, our tissue will be dissolved, even the bones will dissolve, the teeth will decay, but um, our tissue material, for example, if you've chicken, eaten chicken before, we have lots of cholesterol in our bodies, these molecules are so immensely stable, they can actually survive with a little film of oil that can you know, survive for hundreds of millions of years. The molecules will alter a little bit, they will turn into hydrocarbon skeletons. Uh, you, might, you might have seen the action buses in Canberra with um, you know, the dinosaur on it, preserve our fossil fuels. These things are actually fossil skeletons. They're molecular skeletons, completely invisible, extremely tiny. You can only analyze them by using chemical techniques, but they are actually fossil hydrocarbons, and they contain a lot of information about the organism that produced them. So if you dig up me or Charlie that died 200 million years ago in a swamp, we'll find a molecule called cholestine, and that's the molecular fossil of cholesterol. And then you say, wow, cholesterol, no, that looks pretty human, or at least you know, all your carrots actually produce something like this, but it's a lot of biological information in there. Uh, I, but I don't think my tank of fuel ever argued with me. <laughs> uh, so when, this morning when I, uh, I drove in, in my little diesel car, uh, I was actually driving on the power derived from the fossil remnants yeah. of something that so would be... One litre of diesel fuel will contain about three times to the times 10 to the power of 24 biological molecules. It's a number that's completely staggering, unimaginable. Um, so each time you drive 10 kilometers of, of your diesel car, you're burning trillions of trillions of trillions of biological molecules that produced in the Jurassic some 200 million years ago. Oh, I feel so guilty now <laughs> for, for, for various reasons. No. No, no. It's all sunshine. It's all sunshine. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, the end of oil is another topic. But uh, uh, just quickly, Jochen, you uh, when, when I was talking to you the other night, you were saying that um, how might we find traces of uh, uh, life? <coughs> I'm that word again. Uh, possibly by mining the moon. 
That's right. So just, just, just tell me again what that was about. Yeah. So if you really want to find something of the, well, Charlie would object to the word, origin of life, prebiotic chemistry, molecules that don't, are not cells yet, but just do complex chemistry that leads to other forms of later life. Um, on Earth, we can't look for these traces because everything has been, you know, it's plate tectonics, all these old rocks are destroyed. But we might find pieces of, of Earth on the moon. The asteroid hits the Earth, Rocks are sp uh, put into the space and then land on the moon and survive there, freeze-dried within the dust. And if we dig huge quarries on the moon, we might find a little piece of rock from the Earth, four billion years old, and it might contain molecules from, from the origin of life. And, and that bypasses the problem that much of this evidence has been wiped out. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, it's been an, an absolute riot talking to you guys. Uh, I've got to uh, do a quick heads up for what's coming up on Fuzzy Logic because if today's topic wasn't hard enough, next week, guess what? We're talking about consciousness. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, it's all fuzzy. Fuzzy life, fuzzy logic, fuzzy consciousness. You should be comfortable with that, right? <laughs> uh, I, I can imagine uh, how the conversation will be different uh, with you in the room uh, if we, you're here next week, Charlie. But we have a professor of neuroscience and his PhD student, Fiona Wilkes, and uh, what, a, what a great pair they are. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that very much. Uh, we also are looking into forensics and crime in, uh, during Science Week on the 16th of October, Saturday at 3pm at, at the ANU. We have a panel of top flight guests. I'm really looking forward to this. We have the Chief Scientist from the Australian Federal Police. Uh, we have the Deputy Director of the Institute of Criminology. And we have a science fiction writer and we're going to be talking about the future of crime detection what can we do do we have to live with crime forever is it a feature of life what can we do about it and where does science fit into that uh, today in the Canberra times our ask fuzzy column is about actually this is for our my friend who's also been watching us carefully in the studio we actually have a, another doctor dr jenny atten and she's been watching uh, with great amusement I think, and uh, she asked me, we were talking about curly hair the other day. So today's Ask Fuzzies, why do you have curly or straight or just wavy hair? And I had a bit of fun with it because you can ask the surface question, there's the shape of the hair follicle and so on, but it points to evolution. And uh, why in fact would this feature appear in humans in the first place? And I'm sure my friends uh, in the studio would have a few things to say about that. So little time, so much to do. So little time, so <laughs> many questions on the to-do list for our Ask Fuzzy column, which appears each Sunday. By the way, send me your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. And uh, Charlie has been kind enough to answer a few of those for us over the years. Uh, one right, of my uh, uh, tomorrow there's also a paper coming out one of my papers on uh, on cancer I've been doing some cancer research we haven't talked about that but tomorrow it will be coming online and we're sending out a press release so oh, really? keep an eye out for that if you're interested oh, in, in the relationship between evolution and cancer oh Charlie well, yes you've got fascinating things to say about the evolution of cancer and I will remember uh, I think our last program on that topic I really want to catch up on where you are with that this one, actually, Jochen, I know you're a bird enthusiast. It's about bird vision, what the birds actually see. And I've got my friend from the uh, Australian Museum, has, and it was quite a tough question. Uh, lots of interesting things going on in there. And on the uh, Indian Science Week, we have the Geoscience Australia Open Day, and we will be doing a live broadcast from the venue. We're really looking forward to that. And you can come and say g'day to us here will you see us at the at, this, uh, at the place with uh, our panels and our microphones and our headphones, and we'll be broadcasting live for you on Fuzzy Logic. Thank you for your company today, guys. Dr. Charlie Lineweaver and uh, Dr. Jochen Brock. Thanks from the and Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs> and we are doing the, uh, the obligatory Star Trek uh, <laughs> uh, salute. Time to go. Catch you later.